Buena St. Augustine's. It's such a joy to be speaking to you this morning, albeit from a distance and through a camera lens. I certainly wasn't expecting to be in level four lockdown at the start of the week, but here we find ourselves and we're all making the best of it, aren't we? My name's Olivia Byrne and I've been invited by your pastors and leaders to continue this series on formation, turning our attention to a subject that's really close to my heart, and that's the subject of vocation. Now there's a couple of reasons why vocation is really dear to me. I work full-time for a wonderful organisation called Venn Foundation in the role of communications and marketing manager. Now Venn's mission is to help people embrace the depths and riches of the Christian tradition for the good of their homes and workplaces, universities and communities. Now we do this through a variety of educational programmes, including a vocational programme, a residential fellowship and our annual summer conference. And we're ultimately in the business of discipleship and Christian formation. So when I was asked to speak on this series, I was quite delighted. In my role, as an aside, I get to work with a pretty brilliant designer with the name Andy Campbell, who perhaps you've heard of. And I also get to do a bit of writing for our monthly digital publication, Common Ground, and some teaching on a few events programs. We recently finished a three-part series called The Good of Work, which explored what work is, how we might enter work as Christians, and the challenge and opportunity that lies inherent in it. You'll be able to find these three articles and their three corresponding podcasts on Ben's White website. But shortly, you'll also be able to purchase a hard copy of the series once Andy and I have got the pieces designed up and ready to print. I worship at the Upper Room Church in Newmarket, leading a home group of young adults. And also on the side, one of my favourite pastimes is long distance running and racing. Now I mention these three things, my paid employment, my church involvement and my running quite intentionally as we turn to the question of vocation. I say intentionally because I've often asked myself this question, what does it mean to serve God and others in my work? And why is work so often so hard? Some of you might have similar questions or perhaps you've wondered why work holds such an esteemed place in both the world but also within our own hearts. In seeking to answer these questions, over the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to be tracing a theology of work that has three parts. God's original intent for work, the fall and sin's effect on our work, and Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection, which remodels work and vocation for us here today. Ultimately, my hope and prayer is that the Spirit would encourage and guide your understanding of work, that you might see its expansiveness, its beauty, and its promise when done for the glory of God. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be in this space, Lord. Even though we're at a distance, even though we can't be gathering in person, Lord, I just pray that you would um, encourage, pour out your spirit upon this community of St. Augustine's. Um, For those who are in tense times, Lord, would you be there with them? Would you encourage them and give them a sense of hope over the coming weeks? And for those who are enjoying lockdown, I pray that they would then be able to pour out and encourage those around them. Father, we ask that you would be in this conversation on formation and vocation. And we ask that you would bless the words of my mouth, that it would then go out and bless this community for your glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So to begin, let's define the terms. We use this word vocation interchangeably with work, but it's worth highlighting the key difference between the two. 
Some of you might know that vocation comes from this root Latin word vocare, which means to call. Now, when we use it in the context of our day-to-day -day working lives, we're implying that something or someone has called us to this particular work. But as Tim Keller puts it in his excellent book on faith and works, which is called Every Good Endeavour, our work can be a calling only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. In the Christian faith, we know and trust that the caller in all of these settings is God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. Work as calling or vocation is intended to be directed to God's missional outworking in this world. Of course, this doesn't disqualify the plethora of personal goods that comes from our work. It's good to be earning an income, to be supporting yourself in any, any dependence. It's good to be progressing and working towards a goal or vision in life. It's good to have something to get up for in the morning. It's good to feel fulfilled and satisfied and even achieve some sense of self-realization in our work. But if the, all of these goods were put into the highest place in our lives, they ultimately become an idol. And an idol is defined as a good thing that's turned into the ultimate thing. Instead, as Christians, we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is the one that's worthy of our praise, our devotion, our worship, our whole lives. He is the ultimate thing. And our hope is, is for this posture of praise, worship, love and service to be reflected in our working lives and in our growth to spiritual maturity. Now that we've defined the terms of vocation and let's turn to why vocation is so significant in our lives. Now, work is one of the primary contexts for Christian formation. In fact, I'd go so far as calling work one of the two areas for panel beating in my life, along with deep relationships. In no other context are my strengths, weaknesses, and sin so readily revealed. In relationships, as we grow into deeper intimacy and vulnerability, whether that's with a close friend, a boyfriend, a spouse, a girlfriend, our parents or siblings, we all know that our true selves are very quickly revealed. And sometimes that's not pretty. Now the good news is that within these relationships, if they're strong and healthy and aware of the goodness and grace of God, we're able to recognize, confess and submit our sin to the cross of Christ loving one another through it all. And God, in his mercy, walks with us in these journeys of redemption and healing and maturity. Our work and workplaces are similar. It often feels like so much is on the line with our work, doesn't it? Many of us are pouring at least 40 hours into our work, not to mention those who are working over that for full-time hours or working parents. If you're in a role that's not a good fit for your skill set, it can be exhausting and life-draining. And even if you love your job or feel a strong sense of call to your day-to-day -day work, your daily tasks, colleagues, or sometimes even children can draw out the worst in us. But yet, so many of us long to do it. We long to do something worthwhile, something life-giving, something that adds to our lives and the life of the world. And you're actually not alone. Between 2007 and 2018, the Barna Group, which is a North American research institute, conducted this study of 18 to 29 year olds who had grown up Christians. Given the steady decline of millennials leaving the church in North America, they wanted to figure out what would actually keep a young person in the church. 
Through their research, they were able to place participants into four categories. Prodigals, who were ex-Christians. Nomads, who were lapsed Christians. Habitual churchgoers. And resilient disciples. It was this latter group, the ones who had grown up in the church and seemingly against all odds have retained their faith, that Barnum wanted to take a close look at. In this really helpful book called Faith for Exiles, which I've got right here, these two guys, David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock, took the research and recognised five practices that help young people stay in the faith. These practices were intimacy with Jesus, cultural discernment, meaningful intergenerational relationships, engaging in countercultural mission, and vocational discipleship. It's this latter point that stuck out to me, vocational discipleship. They define this term as knowing and living God's calling, understanding what we are made to do, especially in the area, arena of work, and right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. I imagine there's a lot of us, perhaps even above or below the millennial age bracket, that would love to have a sense that we're knowing and living God's calling and that we're right-sizing our ambitions to God's purposes. But what's so disturbing that came out in this research is how few churches help people to do this work. Of those interviewed, only 56% of resilient disciples were given help by their church to live out their faith in the workplace. Now, there's a strong sense among all resilient disciples that God designs a unique calling for each person, that's 87%, that all work is important to God, 82%, and that they want to use their giftings to honour God, 94%. But they're just not given many opportunities to learn how to do this. So let's try to address that and look at some of the ways work is framed in Scripture to help make sense of it. Now, the language of work is woven throughout scripture, and it first appears at the very start. And its first subject is God. Genesis 1 describes the magnificence of God, who speaks all creation into being. It describes this mastermind of beauty and goodness, an awe-inspiring creator God, who made the heavens and the earth, the light and the darkness, the waters and heavens, arable land and waters teeming with life, the sun and moon and galaxies, and all living creatures, men and women. And good work is pronounced from the beginning. God is depicted as a gardener or a farmer, one who cares for horticulture and livestock, an artist, a galaxy maker. He works and calls his handiwork good. And he rests on the seventh day, showing us that there's a rhythm of living to take time to observe and appreciate our work and the world around us. Now Genesis 2 repeats some of the creation story elements of Genesis 1, but its emphasis and description of God is more anthropomorphic, which means that the language used to describe God and his creation hones in on the crown of God's creation the creation of humanity in Adam and then Eve. Listen to the words of the scripture from Genesis 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow up out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. These first humans are placed in the middle of the garden to work it and take care of it, to draw out precious metals from the ground and cultivate the soil. This picture we're given is dynamic and creative, and it's an ongoing creation project which humanity is invited into. And it's a beautiful, vibrant picture of humanity co-laboring with God and caring for all of creation. But like all good, true freedom, there were limitations. In Genesis 3, sin and death enters the scene. By eating the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve rebel against the authority and these good limitations of God's creation. They lay hold of the claim to be wise in their own eyes, and they seek to sustain their lives without reference to God's gift. And the consequences of sin are seen in just the fracturing of everything. Our relationships, our families, our callings and giftings, our desires and motivations. And notably, this fracturing goes right the way down, all the way through our work. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The ground is cursed. Work has become toil. Instead of receiving the fruit of the soil, humanity now needs to contend with weeds and thistles. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, and it really doesn't take long for us to begin to see the the effects of the curse on all of creation and all of our work. Within one generation, we're given our first example of fratricide. Cain is a farmer, his younger brother Abel is a shepherd. Cain brings an offering of some of the fruits of his work, and Abel brings a sacrifice of the best portions of some of his firstborn from his flock. God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he does not look favorably on Cain's. And out of envy and anger, Cain kills his brother. We know this story, but seen within the context of work and vocation, I think we can easily see how the degeneration of humanity into the curse of sin has such a long reach. We too can be motivated by jealousy and anger. Within our own work, we can so easily work for self-interest to advance our own career, to make a name for ourselves. We so easily make idols of our work, our salary, our independence, our success. We turn a good thing into the ultimate thing in our lives and so often hinge our identity on our work. And as outlined in Genesis 3, our work is often toilsome. It can be fruitless, pointless and produce only thistles and weeds. Many of the world's corporates and businesses practice oppression and injustice for the sake of the bottom dollar. 
It's a wonder we don't actually give up on work entirely, given how prone it is to idolatry and corruption and the devastating effects of sin. But something remains present in the background to this conversation. It's this innate desire to work for so many of us, the sense that there can be something better for us within work, that it can somehow bring hope and life and fulfillment to our own lives, but also to the world. There's this longing for work to mean something more, and it's actually part of our DNA. It's how we were designed in the image of our maker. When God takes Adam and places him in the garden to work it and keep it, the Hebrew word that's used is abad, which has three meanings. To work, to serve, and to worship. When we read of the first humans going to work in God's creation project, we're supposed to be reminded of worship, work, and service. It's supposed to have a direction and a goal towards something other than ourselves. And it should actually remind us of the root meaning of vocation, to be called out and work for something larger than ourselves. But really, how? Given our tendency to sin, is there a way to actually work well, for work to take its rightful place as a good and true offering to the Lord? We're now entering the third movement of this theology of work, the redemption of work, as found in the third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. What Jesus models for us is the ultimate vision of a life of work and service that's devoted to the will of the Father and ultimate love and trust. In Jesus' life, we see the true high priest, the one who is able to fulfill the work of the Father as the one holy and pure sacrifice. At Jesus' baptism, we read of the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Christ, and a voice from heaven declaring, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus' identity as the beloved Son of God is firm and established since the beginning of time. Jesus and his Father are one, and out of this intimate trust flows all of Jesus' work of reconciliation and salvation here on earth. We see this in his constant retreating to be in a quiet place to be with his Father. We see it in his 40 days of hunger, thirst, and temptation in the desert. We see it in his despair and submission at Gethsemane, and we see it as he hung on the cross. All of Jesus' life and work reveals an intimacy with and submission to God. But it's also important to note that Jesus' work wasn't limited to these three years of salvific work. For 30 years, he walked and breathed and ate and laughed and lived as a human on this earth. Apprenticed to an earthly father as a carpenter and experiencing all the mundanity that 9 to 5 work affords. In the words of my colleague John Dennison, as a carpenter, we can assume he shared in many of the aspects of work we're familiar with. Limitations of time, energy and materials, the challenge of relationships at work, how best to manage money and resources, and what jobs to take on for who and how. This too was good work, shaping the man we know as Lord and Saviour. In both his work as carpenter and work as rabbi, son of God, Jesus' work was shaped by his intimacy and closeness with his Father. Jesus' work also revealed the Father's heart. His mission wasn't to condemn the world, but to save it. 
He never postured himself as self-righteous, even if he was the only righteous one. And he never sought power, prestige, or recognition. Instead, walking with a surety and confidence in the one who sent him. Jesus was about his father's business of seeking and saving the earth. And Jesus' work was for God's glory, that God's name might be magnified. And what's so magnificent about this picture of God's saving grace through the person of Jesus Christ is that just like Adam and Eve in Eden, we're invited to co-labor with Christ as his handiwork. So as we come to this conversation on formation through vocation, we ask, what does this theology of work teach us about our own spiritual formation? Through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can start to see the world and our work through a gospel lens. Good creation, the fall, and then redemption. We can see and claim the good original design of the maker, the good original intent of work. We can see the ways the fall has marred our work and our own motives and actions within our work, and we can repent from these habits or moments of sin. And while we continue to live in the now but not yet, where the kingdom of God is not fully realized, we can look to Jesus and be formed into his likeness as we outwork Christ's redemption of all things, including our work. Now here are just three of the ways that we might be formed into his likeness and live out the example of Jesus. First, Jesus is called the second Adam, the truly human one who is able to live and embody all that the first Adam and we couldn't. Our creation mandate was to rule and subdue the earth, to care for it and steward its resources. Now we failed, but in being formed into Jesus' likeness, we too are able to care for creation and all living creatures. And what this look like, looks like is that we should be leading the conversation on sustainability and care for this planet. Second, we can see that Jesus is the true high priest. And as those who are being formed into his likeness, we're also meant to serve as priests, mediating God's blessing to this world, as the first Adam was always meant to do. Now the Latin word for priest is pontifex, which translates to bridge builder. We are meant to represent God to creation and to each other, and then each other and the rest of creation back to God. Now part of this looks like prayer, praying for the Lord's presence and favour to be with our work, our colleagues, our families, our enemies, and all our endeavours. In particular, we're to be praying for and blessing our church and church leaders. And they long for this. And it's so important in our vocation as members of the body of Christ to be praying for our church leaders. And third, Jesus cared for those in all sorts of jobs and vocations. His parables were replete with agricultural, farming, fishing, and marketplace metaphors. These were jobs were seen and valued by Jesus, and these should also be seen and valued by ourselves. In the garden, Adam was given the task of cultivating the earth, creating new life, new skills, new tools, and new projects out of what was available. He was called to be fruitful and multiply, not just in procreation, but also in procreation, but also in creating new life from God's good creation. In a similar way, we're to be culture makers, making music and designing furniture and helping people recover post-surgery 
and bringing new life into the world through creative projects or children and playing sport and competing in sport and building houses and repairing pipes. All our work can find meaning and significance in God's economy. Now, as we close, I want to direct our attention to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In a posture of worship and thanksgiving, Paul declares the authority and power of the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus' work of life, death, resurrection and ascension allows the church, us, his people, to be free to live free from the shackles of sin, free to know God and free to be in relationship with him, and free to do good works for his glory. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And these good works are really exciting. God has prepared general tasks for all who know and love him, which we witness within the creation mandate. And he's also prepared specific tasks for you based on your skill set and giftings. As we continue our journey of growth and formation into the likeness of Christ, my prayer is that we embrace the ways that Jesus models a healthy, God-glorifying approach to work and that we might find a place within God's vision for a flourishing, redeemed world. As we close, I just want to close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've been given this vision for work, ordained by you, prepared by you, and given to each of us, Father. Now, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus Christ and empowered by you, Lord. Father, would you equip us? Would you guide our thoughts and our mind as we go about our work? Would you give us a sense of renewed purpose for the work that we're doing? And if you need to refine us and if you need to uh, steer us in a different direction, Father, then I pray that you would do so uh, gently and gracefully. And that this congregation, St. Augustine's, that they would sense and know the love and the mystery and the wonder and the goodness of your presence in their lives this coming week. In your holy name we pray. Amen.